0: Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
1: I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do. Everybody poo-pooed the idea. Network said it couldn't be done. You're in that zone.
0: And it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything clicks.
1: Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so
0: mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't, shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that, that is the thing
1: that, that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias.
0: This is Jody Martel. This is Chi-Yun.
1: This is Dick Vitale, and you listen to American Achievers.
0: Welcome to American Achievers, the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world famous, some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the American Dream. Imagine you're fired from your job. Once the shock wears off, how would you react? Would you be able to summon the creativity and guts to launch a billion-dollar brand out of your own back pocket? Bill Rasmussen did. In 1978, when Rasmussen was dismissed by Hockey's Hartford Whalers, he didn't panic. He didn't get drunk and he didn't start looking for a new job. He didn't think like a publicity man. Instead, he thought like an entrepreneur, like a visionary. Many people doubted him. Many big-money people rejected him. And his idea met with skepticism from many cable operators, operators who didn't understand, in 1978, what business they were in. Rasmussen invented a business that helped reinvent an entire industry. And you validate his vision every time you flip on ESPN. Bill, it's great to have you with us today. Hope you're doing well. I am indeed, Keith. Thank you very much. Tell us about your early days. You were born in Chicago. Yes,
1: indeed. On the south side of Chicago in uh, 1932, believe it or not. I I don't believe that sometimes. (laughs)
0: 1932. For those who were not around, what are your memories of that time?
1: Yes, uh, obviously the Depression had long since taken hold, and uh, as I recall growing up in those early days, uh, my parents and, and all parents really struggled. Uh, we were we were kind of what's known today, I guess, as the silent generation, where we, we basically Everybody put their head down and went to work. And as the kids were growing up, we were kind of expected to be seen but not heard and learn all the good things that we we're supposed to learn about life. Uh, I can remember one lesson that was drilled into all of our heads. I had uh, two brothers and a sister, and my parents used seven words. My I could still hear my father saying it. If you use these words in any order that you want, you'll get along just fine. And it was yes, no, no ma'am sir please and thank you and if you think about that you can mix that up anyway and and it it goes a long way toward solving problems and I've, i've thought about those words over the years countless times
0: how did your parents shape you what did they teach you about life
1: well, obviously, honesty was a, a honesty and hard work. That was really what they told us to do and what they taught us to do. And and there were a lot of practical applications of that. And if in those days, if you happened to go astray, they had a different method of curing that problem than they do today. It was called the woodshed, basically, <laughs> and going out behind it, and uh, and getting the message straightened out. But. Uh, It was, they were very, very concerned about education. No one in their family had ever been to college. I actually turned out to be the first one to go to college. And my father was the 11th uh, of 11 kids. So it was quite a, quite a feat for him to get, uh, have me go to college. And then of course, my two brothers followed and my sister as well.
0: And what did your dad do for a living?
1: For many years, he was a banker, but that in 1932, obviously that, the banking business was in some trouble, and he did a variety of things. I can remember he to, to just to put food on the table. He delivered milk in the morning. He was a milkman. Uh, he was a streetcar conductor, and and uh, became an insurance salesman. He tried any number of things just to earn a few dollars here and there. And then after the war was over, and we got. Into the into the rebuilding following World War II, we went back into the banking business, and in fact retired as a banker.
0: How did that time and place mark you?
1: Well, I I think uh, the the lessons that we got from the, the discussions that we had with our parents and our peers we we all wanted to do good things. Uh, you know, we were all. We were all old enough. I was in the, fir- in the fourth grade when World War II started, so we were we were all old enough to understand uh, things were happening uh, around the world. And as as the war uh, continued, we ended up oh getting uh, wire hangers and newspapers and tin cans and anything the the government asked for. All of these, all of us to help everywhere, and we were all very everybody. I can't remember a person that was not patriotic and doing all they could to help in whatever small way we could. And of course, when the war ended and we, I, I happened to graduate from high school on the very day that June 25th, 1950 that the Korean war started. So it, to us, it seemed like we were, you know, it was kind of a period of conflict, but we were all, uh, all of us, we played, we played games basically, and we were U.S. soldiers or Marines or whatever it might be. And uh, and so when the Korean War started, everybody was still in that patriotic mode, and we we continued. And I I think you know I ended up going into the Air Force. Uh, I think everybody that that we knew I don't know of any that didn't go into the active service at some point. And uh, we we became solid citizens. We became. You know, patriotic, very patriotic, and to this day, it's. You know, I still feel the same way, uh, and and I that goes all the way back to uh, Army ROTC in high school and and Armed Forces Day parades and so on. We don't see those things anymore, but it was uh, it was a, a solid uh, study hard, work hard, and be honest kind of an upbringing. That's that was emphasized almost, uh, not almost daily, I guess daily by either word or deed, we were taught those things.
0: Thanks for joining us on American Achievers. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to access our exclusive premium content, visit us at AmericanAchievers.us or search for American Achievers at Patreon.com. For a few bucks a month, you get to access our monthly email newsletter, the monthly American Achievers Extra audio program and the quarterly Zoom show, American Achievers Green Room, where you get to interact with one of our accomplished and intriguing guests. For details, visit AmericanAchievers.us and click on the Premium Membership button. Want to learn about my eight books, including biographies of Paul Bear Bryant, Joe Montana, and Francis Gary Powers? Visit KeithDunavant.com or your favorite bookstore. My latest, Speed, The Life of a Test Pilot, and The Birth of an American Icon. It's all about Bob Gilliland and the development of the super-secret SR-71 Blackbird spy plane. Now back to the program. Not to jump ahead here, but you're going to face some adversity in your life. How did you learn, as a young person, not to panic?
1: Well, you know, it's, it's interesting that you say that, Keith. You're asked that because uh, we all played sports. We all, you know, went off to school. We all did what we were told to do. Basically, that was that was that's what our our generation did. We we um, we were told, we were given a task, told to do it. If our task was, you know. Go to go to school and do this extra project. We went and did it, and no, no matter what a, what it was. And so, I, I I I can't remember a time when I wasn't very positive. I always thought we could accomplish anything. If it was stealing second base, we could do that. If it was uh, you know working with the paper drive to pick up extra paper for recycling, we could do that. We didn't have the words recycling and all of the kinds of things that we have today. It was. You just go do these things. But I, I don't ever recall a time when I wasn't positive about, okay, I've been given this task. Let's go, let's go get it done as quickly in and the, and the best way we know how. And it, it's, uh, I think, I think that playing a lot of sports teaches that kind of discipline as well. And, you know, everybody doesn't win. In every event there was a winner and a loser. And if we lost this week, we'd win next week. It's, uh, and it's. And that this carried over when I went off to college and off to the Air Force and it, and and really the rest of my life it just uh, I couldn't wait to get on to the next project, whatever whatever it
0: might be. Who were your sports heroes growing up?
1: Well and growing up in Chicago back in, in that day, Sid Luckman was the quarterback for the Chicago Bears, Luke Appling was the shortstop for the White Sox. Um uh, and the the Blackhawks were, hockey was really just coming on the scene. Well, all sports were in effect because uh, the all-star game was invented by Arch Ward, the Chicago Tribune sports editor in 1933. The first game was played. Um, first Heisman Trophy was back in 1935 or six. And uh, so that was Jay Berwanger. I remember seeing that name and could, didn't understand what it all meant, but he won this big award. Those were, and then of course, uh, as, as the years went on during the war years, Johnny Lujack was playing at Notre Dame. We thought Notre Dame was a pretty big event. And when one of my cousins, uh, ended up playing later at Notre Dame, that he was, he was our hero. Um, but there were, of course, that was the era of Bob Feller and Joe DiMaggio and all those folks that they went off to war. Ted Williams, I got to see all those guys play. It was very, very interesting in those days. They, they were really heroes to us.
0: The connection you had with with sports, playing it, watching it, reading about it, thinking about it, at a time when television didn't exist. How did that shape you as a man?
1: Well, the interesting thing was I was fascinated. We couldn't wait to get the morning newspaper because. The sports writers of the day, you know, they weren't competing, as you just said. We didn't have TV, and and even radio was limited during World War II. Um, So the writers really told the story, painted the picture, and gave us, you know, the sparkling green grass on a sunny day at Comiskey Park or Wrigley Field, and we couldn't wait to read the box score and get all the details. We all learned how to read box scores in the newspaper. and. Uh, that small agate type, which I later discovered as my eyes started to go, that I needed glasses to read. But back in in those days, w- we could we could make the action come alive by reading the words, and depending on how the various sports writers told the story of the football game or baseball game or hockey or whatever it was. There was no NBA back in, and there was no NBA until nineteen forty nine. So the war was behind us at that point, but. Um, I still think to this day. Uh, remember some of the the uh, images in my mind that were triggered by the ability of the sports writers.
0: Tell me about your days as an Air Force procurement officer.
1: Yeah, it was. Uh, let's see. What they had a different name for us. It was contracting officer. That's what it was. They called us contracting officer. The engineers worked in one building with defense contractors all around the country and and we would go off to visit somebody, and I think it was Remington Rand was in Minneapolis. We'd go there, and we'd go to Sperry out on Long Island, and I think all we were doing really was monitoring what, what the uh, pile of paperwork that we had uh, said they were supposed to be doing, and we didn't really know very much about what all was happening, but uh, it was very compartmentalized everybody had all kinds of security clearances and so on. And we were all working in our own little area and then it all came together someplace along the line. Uh, we were part of the air force, uh, the, uh, air, let's see, arm uh, of the air force, hmm, AFAC, whatever it was. I can't even remember. Anyways, part of the, Part of the whole development program that led up to the ultimately to the launching of the first astronaut Alan Shepard in the late 1950s and uh, we were there when the first big computers arrived and they were big computers coming in on 18 wheelers and uh very slow unlike what we have today like a, a cell phone or a laptop or anything it was it was quite interesting the time in my time in the air force was really fun in addition to doing that I got to play ball in the air force too and so we traveled and played some games here and there along the way. It was, um, uh, you know, I look back and I think about all that, that Keith, it was, re- I really had a lot of fun. Um, we didn't have a lot of, we didn't have a lot of extras in life, but it didn't make any difference. If we had a bat and a ball and some friends, we could go conjure up some,
0: some entertaining afternoon. And you were a pretty good baseball player, right?
1: Well, and uh, I guess it all it, it all depends <laughs> I didn't I didn't get as far as I wanted to go but yeah, I played for a long time and when I stopped playing I ended up umpiring for 10 or 12 years. So I was really invested in baseball.
0: What was it about baseball that you loved?
1: Well, I don't know. I guess it was just, you know, the bat and the ball we'd read about them in the newspapers. And during the war we used to hear we could listen if there was a road game. They, many of the announcers could not travel with the team, so it was a teletype, and all, all we'd hear the clicking in the background, and the announcer would say, you know, it's a, a strike or a ball, and that was that. Uh, so that was the only way we could listen. But I was fascinated by the intricacy of scorekeeping, and, and I, my my grandchildren today kid me about I'm an XL guy. I guess I was an XL guy before those XL because I, I would – keep listening on the radio if I or go to the ball game and I would keep score and then I would have my own little set of facts and figures that I whatever I devise for myself and I I would keep track of all those things when you learn you know you first learn batting averages you hear the word batting average and then you, you learn how you do that and then all the rest of it goes with baseball and And so it was only natural that I would want to play because we seemed to have a bat and a ball. Everybody had a bat and a ball. Sometimes the bat was put, you know, if it was cracked or broken, your father would put a screw in it and put a piece of tape around it. That would work. And if the seam started to rip on a baseball, we'd just get another piece of electrical tape. And I don't know what that would do to the flight of the ball, but we had a lot of dead balls. I know we could not hit them very far after a while. But I was just fascinated by the sport. And uh, so as, as everyone, you know, whatever it is, it's basketball, I have a grandson who was fascinated by basketball
0: and never really
1: much cared to play baseball. So it's hard to tell. But I, I that was my sport. I loved the game in all aspects, even even umpiring for many years. I still enjoyed the game.
0: When you got out of the service, you eventually got into broadcasting. How did that happen?
1: Well, that perhaps is the most interesting story that I. Uh, I wonder myself how it happened because I. I got out of the service and worked at Westinghouse for a few years, uh, three years in Bloomfield, New Jersey. We started a small. I left Westinghouse to start a small business as a service company, distributing advertising materials and so on for for Westinghouse, and that grew into a business that ultimately lasted some fifty years. That was in 1959. We started that, and as it grew rapidly. I still harbored this idea that I wanted to do something in sports. And obviously I couldn't play at that point. I was too old to begin down, to go down that path. And so I decided to get into the radio, radio business, not even thinking about television particularly because television really just got started after the war. I don't think baseball was on television until the late 1940s. Uh, NCA football came on in the early 1950s and, so I really wanted to do this. And I, there used to be a magazine called Broadcasting Magazine. They had an, uh, a couple of pages of little two or three lines of type saying things like the one that I answered. It said Westerly, Rhode Island, uh, Sportscaster, radio station, whatever it was. So and, and a phone number. So I picked up the phone, called the number, and said that I'd like to come up and meet the gentleman. I was living in uh, New Jersey at the time. And this was going to Westerly, Rhode Island. I don't know if he thought I was in Boston or what, but he said, "Sure, come on in tomorrow morning or whatever the time of the day was." And I said, "Okay." So I got in the car, drove up to Westerly, Rhode Island, walked in the door, and he, you know, after saying hello, he said, "Well, you got a tape?" And I said, "No." And he said, "Well, what radio station do you work for now?" I said, "I've never worked in radio." And he said, "Wait a minute, you're answering an ad for a radio, and you've never worked in radio?" And I said, "That's right." And he said, You know, I kind of like your attitude. And I'll tell you what, if you'll help me put the station, I'm putting a new station on the air in Amherst, Massachusetts. If you'll work with me and help me get that on the air, you're my sportscaster. So on my 30th birthday, I resigned. My partners uh, agreed, I, I traded them stock for three years' salary. And so they'd they agreed to pay me for three years. And I went up to Amherst, Massachusetts. We put the station on the air and April 1st, 1963, I said my first words ever on uh, on radio. at 7:45 that morning. I remember it. I can I can still picture me in that little itty bitty booth, little audio booth, and uh, off we went. And so we p- proceeded. Uh, uh, we were in Amherst, Mass, where the University of Massachusetts was. And one day, I said to the owner who had put it on, put the station on the air. I said you know, the university's here. Why don't we do some sports? Why don't we ask them we can do, do their football games? Well, I, you know, he said, sure, why not? I mean, it was pretty loose leaf in those days, Keith. So I went up to the university and talked to the athletic director and said, you know, we're the new station in town. We've gone on the air in April. We'd like to do your games this fall. And he said, okay. And I said, oh? And he said, anything else? I said, well, uh, what about basketball? Sure. He said, go ahead. So. Uh, no, no rights fees, no contracts, no anything. He said, we, our first games in Maine in September, get the schedule. I'll introduce you to the head coach and the, and the sports information people. And is there anything else you want? Nope. Fine. Look forward to seeing you over the summer and we'll hear the games in the fall. So we went into radio by not having any experience. And I went up there expecting, I don't know what I expected. I, you know, rights fees weren't a billion dollars or anything like they are today. And, and we did the games and got into the basketball season. And Johnny Orr, uh, who went on to fame at uh, Michigan and Iowa State later, was the coach, and a uh, basketball coach. And one thing led to another, and uh, that was the radio business.
0: You're listening to American Achievers. Stay tuned for more conversation. What did you learn about being a sports announcer during that period? You had no preparation, no experience.
1: I think just life. I mean, I used to, I would do play-by-play with. I had a little baseball game, and and I would uh, create a. Uh, it was a game with a, a little inserts, you put it on a dial, a little spinner, really, and uh, and I would create teams and do my own play-by-play to myself over and over again. I could do a whole game in 10 minutes. In if I had a, if I was really on, on the top of it, on any given afternoon, I could do these baseball games, create my lineups. Uh, and they, the players that they had in this particular game were all the players of the 1940s, you know, Bob Feller and Archie Vaughan and Ducky Medwick and Danny Litwiler and all of those folks names that are, have faded in history at this moment, um, and I, I just just knew I could do it, and so and I wasn't concerned about. I, I wasn't. Some people are mic shy, you know. They look at a microphone and they freeze. I was the other way around. I would look forward to it. put put as Put as many things into the show as I possibly could, and uh, you know, having no experience, I really just learned on the job, basically. Uh, we learned a lot about that in World War II. The, that was a constant uh, phrase that we would read in the newspapers about, you know, this whatever it was came along and people learned on the job. So I learned to do the radio business on the job. That gave me confidence. And I thought I could do television as well. Never occurred to me. Of course, on the, then the tryouts, I guess, if you want to call them that, or auditions were some guy would leave, and you'd hear you'd hear his job was uh, you know he'd gone to this sportscaster had gone to from Boston to wherever, so people would go into Boston and see if they could get that job. I I didn't do that. I just went across town from one TV station to another.
0: Did as you turn out after you've been on the air for a while? Was there a moment out in the community when people started recognizing you?
1: Oh yeah. Well, it was a small town, so everybody knew everybody. And you couldn't make a mistake because everybody, I mean, any mistake you made, people would come and tell you, or any good thing you did, people would come up and tell you. I think Amherst only had like 6,000 people at the time. It was a tiny town. And uh, we were, not only did we do the, all of us that were on the air, also went out into the community and and sold advertising. So we would, you know, come and see the for example you know the the keith shoe, Sto- shoe store let's say and we'd go in and say hi keith and we're doing this and uh i'm also we'd love to have you in the ball game this weekend or, and it really was down to this weekend or this month or whatever everything was uh, you could buy the news for five dollars i remember that was a big deal if you could make a five dollar sale you i mean if you had five dollars to spend you could be a Sponsor of a five-minute newscast, and it was all local news, and so it was really kind of a almost like a campus atmosphere where we were all we were all in it together, the townspeople and us.
0: What did you learn during that period about not being afraid to fail?
1: I think I think that's not being afraid to fail is exactly what it was because I thought we could I I thought then and I still think now that I I can do anything and. The real message, though, that I that I learned was, just always always ask questions. Be be curious. Always be curious. Ask, you know, if you're complacent and you say, well, I, you know, I think I'd like to do that, but maybe, well, I don't know what they're going to say. Well, just go ask them. You can't be afraid of failure. You can't be afraid of rejection. And so I've really done that. Basically, that's that's carried all through my life. Is I've always been curious. And when I talk to kids in campuses to this day or in a high school or in a business, uh, I emphasize that you should always be curious and never be complacent. And if you think about those six words, that's ABC and NBC. So it's very easy for me to remember, and it's a natural bridge when I'm telling people because, you know, they think of the networks when I talk about that. But I, I've just always felt that way, Keith, that I, I ask, I've been a very curious guy. I always ask, how does this work? How, why, how, to, how can I do that? Why can't I do that? And uh, I guess maybe, you know, some people would say, well, then you're just harassing people or whatever. Well, I, I wouldn't do that. They'd say, no, you can't do it. Okay, well, why can't I? i just ask the question, and then uh, we would move on and do the next thing. And uh, I look back now and i I was talking just the other day to some folks and about all you know looking back over your life it's just amazing i can't I can't ever remember being anything different than I am now. I just uh, see something and it triggers an idea and I'll ask a question and just be curious about it and go forward and I, I think that's a lesson that we all learn at some point, some to a greater degree and sometimes people wander from that track I guess but I, I my even my grandchildren they kid me about that they say you know you're you're pretty determined when you start asking questions and so I think some of it's rubbing off on some of them as well so that's good and it certainly rubbed off on my children because uh, my two sons and daughter have all been very successfully work very hard and they too ask a lot of questions and And they're curious about things.
0: At that point, what was your long-range ambition?
1: I I guess this is going to sound odd to be to be successful at whatever I was doing. And when I was doing uh, television, I was doing did live television for the better part of ten years, from sixty-five to seventy-five. And at that point, starting in a local market, I wanted to go. Well, I thought. I skipped a few steps. I said, let's just go right to New York. And, uh, so I went to New York and talked to some people. And of course there were, there was no, the networks didn't do very much in the way of sports in those days, local, local markets were the places that you could do sports. Uh, and so my goal was to be up, to get to the next rung up the ladder, which would have been, uh, in a big, bigger city, or obviously to do something in New York with one of the networks. Well, that didn't happen. But uh, the hockey business got more involved. I had been doing hockey in Springfield, along with all of the uh, radio and television in Springfield, Massachusetts. And uh, then in the, the New England Whalers came. They were they moved from Boston to uh, Hartford. And so I had been doing some hockey. I actually did have some experience at that point when I went to talk to somebody and Howard Baldwin was the man to talk to with the Whalers and he hired me. And so I did a combination of television, nightly telecasts for a short while, but then the Whalers offered, I asked for a full-time job and got it. And uh, then of course that led to my being fired and that really tested my my theory that I can do anything and ask questions and keep on going. And that was probably, I guess that would be the, well, obviously it was the turning point in my life because ESPN came out of that. But, uh, I don't know if there was ever any one specific thing that said, this is the turning point. It was take every day as it comes. And,
0: and, uh,
1: see what happens, and, and, and it turned out pretty well.
0: Let's set the scene. The Whalers had a, a bad year in 1977-78, and the entire front office was fired, including you. How did you react to this life-altering event?
1: With the Whalers, the, the Whalers themselves have been through a lot, having the roof fall in on the Hartford Civic Center during the winter, and we, we ended up uh, that 77-78 season opening with 13 straight games on the road back and forth from coast to coast. We were uh, in San Diego and all across North America, all of the Canadian cities. We were in Quebec three times during that stretch. And they finally found a home in Springfield, Massachusetts in a small, much smaller arena, but they had to have a place to play. But uh, when the season ended and and it was Howard's thought that we would uh, part ways. We didn't know how extensive it was going to be, obviously, we had no idea. Uh, I had been working, Gordy Howe had come to the uh, Whalers, uh, Colleen and Gordy and their two boys, Mark and Marty. And I was the executive director of Howe Enterprises and doing the, all the communications at radio slash TV for the Whalers. And on Memorial Day weekend, 1978, on the Saturday of Memorial Day weekend, I remember very specifically, I got a phone call just as I was getting ready to go out the door Saturday morning to go down and play golf. And it was Colleen Howe on the phone. And uh, I can't reconstruct it exactly, but she was really nervous. And she said, uh, essentially, uh, Bill... uh, uh I didn't really want to do this this way. Uh I don't really I wanted to, and she was really kinda of stammering. <laughs> she said, uh Howard doesn't want you back. We don't want Howard doesn't want you back and neither do we. Uh call Howard. Um uh um, I mean, gotta to go to I'm I'm heading uh I've gotta catch the plane. Bye. And off she went. Just like that. So that was I was dismissed from uh, duty, obviously, and so I did call Howard on Tuesday afterwards, and he said that Colleen talked to you. Yep. He said, "Well, uh, there's nothing else to say." And I said, "Well, do you want me to come in and see?" You? He said, "What for?" He said, "I'll send you a, uh, uh, send you a severance check for your last two weeks' pay." Goodbye, and that was it. So that launched me on we while with the whalers as their communications director. We had been exploring the idea of putting the Whaler games on local cable television uh, systems in Connecticut. There were only five operating systems at the time. And I think the biggest subscriber count was 9,500. So it wasn't a very big deal.
0: Let's talk about what cable was in 1978. It was still basically a way to get distant broadcast signals. You had Ted Turner's superstation out of Atlanta, growing on systems across the country... And the first pay cable outlets, including HBO, but very little else.
1: Yeah, it was basically cable. There were only about twelve and a half million cable households, and it was it was more an engineering feat than anything else. Uh, a a distance from the city, someone would put up a tower that could could uh, bring in ABC, NBC, CBS, and and whatever else there might be locally that they could produce. And they would just dig it. Uh, one of my very favorite uh, pieces of equipment that they had back in the day that they talked about was their ditch witch. They would go down a street and dig a, a trench, literally, or a ditch and lay cable in it. And every house was literally wired to something because the tower would bring in the signal and then it would go in effect. It was like laying wire to every single house up and down the street. And they would do that very expensive proposition. And there weren't very many big cities just didn't have it at all. Uh, and it was basically a rural service, a high point in Pennsylvania or high point in Virginia or wherever it might be. You look up and you see a tower up on the, up on the hillside and uh, they would be wired to the houses and it was the Cable feed then was all of five or six dollars a month, maybe seven dollars if they could be uh, you know get enough people to, to pay it. but it was it was really a fledgling business, even as late as nineteen seventy nine and eighty. There was no real thought of putting it together as as an example. I talked to one cable operator because we we had advocated putting uh, advertising in these games that we were going to do, first of all, they said, you can't do that. And we said, well, here's the idea. You know, and you can sell local advertising. You can go talk to the local car dealer or pizza house or whatever. And I remember sitting in an office and one guy looked across from me and this is a, the manager or the, the sales manager or the vice president of something in the sales company. And he said, why would I want to do that? I'd have to go hire a salesman. And I said, well, here's an idea. I, I was really so frustrated. and I. Very brash, I guess. I said, here's an idea. He sells something for $100. You give him 10 and you keep 90 And that kind of, he paused for a moment and said, well, we'll see. But obviously now cable television from that time on grew in advertising and, and with all the other technology that's come along, it's quite different. But it was really a staggering industry. It was just kind of stumbling along. So you get fired.
0: And your first inclination was not to panic, and it was not to go look for another job. You decided instead to invent something.
1: Yeah, it it um, really—it never occurred to me that that you know that I wouldn't be able to feed the family or anything. Uh, As it turned out, it it you know it literally that old adage about opening a, a new door. Uh, Because we had been talking to cable systems, I did know people at each of the cable, all five cable systems in in Connecticut. And uh, the one in Plainville, Connecticut, which was uh, United United Cable uh, Television, was the parent company in Denver. And I was talking to the vice president, and he said, you know there's this new thing coming, we don't know very much about it. Uh, it's called uh, the satellite, and we don't know what how it works, but he said, "I've got an idea. Why don't I get the guys, meaning the people from the other cable systems that were operating, as well as there were five that were authorized but not yet operating. He said, "Why don't I get the guys together and we'll talk about it?" So he invited them to a meeting in Plainville, Connecticut, and introduced me, and he said, uh, you know, some of you know Bill from the Whalers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we're trying to find out what this new satellite thing is. But what do we know about the satellite, that's, This satellite age that's coming? And, and uh, it was kind of funny, really, Keith, because everybody there had a different opinion. One guy said, well, you can do this in the afternoon. And another guy said, no, you have to buy five hours at night. And another one said, no, you can do weekends. And, and so my host finally said, at one point, guys, we don't know any more about this than Bill does, but thanks for coming. And he said, and what we're going to do, and maybe we'll all find out a little bit. And he had the phone number for RCA AmeriCom in New York. And he said, why don't you, meaning me, they didn't want to call. But he said, why don't you pick up the phone and call these guys? And maybe you can find out a little bit more about what satellite business is going to be. And so I called. And uh, you know, here I am, a little guy from Southside Chicago, and I've just been fired and all that sort of stuff. But it occurred to me I'm calling New York City, and in those days there weren't a lot of automated things. A real live person would answer the phone, and she wouldn't have any she or he wouldn't have any idea that you know who I was or what it was. And I told her what I wanted to do. I wanted to speak with someone about information about their satellite sales program. Oh yes, sir. Just one moment, and she put me through to a young man named Al Perinello. He was probably 30 years old, and I explained what I was doing, and he just listened for a minute or two, and I, you know, told him a little bit of the background, and I said, I've got an idea, but we need some satellite time, and some folks have suggested I call him, and the first thing he said is, where are you located in Connecticut? And I told him, you know, Plainville, just outside Hartford. He said, I'm coming up to see you. I can be up there, you know, and he came up the next day or two, And as we went through the meeting, my son and I were both in the meeting, Scott, my son Scott, the oldest son, and he was explaining all the things we could do. HBO was buying um, for $1,250 an hour, five hours at night, and you could buy afternoon time for, you know, $750 or what it was. It was was literally just kind of a... um, a menu you could pick what you want and then he said we've got this one that we never ever have sold and we don't even talk about it anymore he said but just so you know he said it was a it's five years it's 24 hours a day and it's thirty four thousand one hundred sixty seven dollars a month for a five-year contract of course we didn't have that kind of money but that didn't make any difference and scott said my son said wait a minute you sell $1,250 an hour to HBO at night, and this is only uh, $1,147 or whatever it was. And I said, well, those are the numbers. So we thought about it, and the next day we called him and said, we'd, he said, "We'll take one of those. I didn't know the word that we were taking was a transponder. I thought it was a satellite. But there were 24 transponders on each satellite launched back in the day. And so he said, I said, we take one of them. He said, you will? And from that point on, we met a lot of people who were really interested in making these things happen. We didn't know, for example, that RCA had launched this satellite in December 1975 and it virtually was flying around half empty for over three years or almost three years at that point. And they were looking for someone who would have an idea that could occupy one transponder 24 hours a day. And here we are looking for a way to do sports. I thought sports, We've, we figured out we wanted to do nothing but sports 24 hours a day. And um, so we had an an unwitting ally or an unknown ally and that we were, we were thinking we had to sell them on the idea of what we were doing. That 24 hours was a great idea. And they already knew 24 hours was a great idea because they had, satellite in the sky flying around empty so they worked with us
0: did you have to put up any money at that point not a penny now how is that possible
1: i don't know (laughs) the uh, rca we met with the rca vice president and first of all when we talked in uh late june early july that time period about what was available as 24 hours and we committed we said we had told them what the plan was at that spot they didn't know whether we could find enough sports but they liked the idea that somebody was willing to try and do a 24-hour occupy one of their uh transponders for 24 hours so they said we haven't made any official announcements uh maybe maybe making an announcement about what your idea is that uh, we've got somebody who's thinking about it we'll, we can get some more interest well what they finally said was look we'll commit to you that you've got a transponder, we, you know, they knew we weren't ready to to use, to use it right away, but you'll have a slot on the, uh, on the satellite. And if people, if we start getting a lot of activity, we'll let you know so that you can make the commitment and you can make your decision, yes or no, to go forward. So in late September, they had announced that they had several other people looking for transponders, so they sent us a, uh i guess it was a, a telegram was the official notification they they committed to us and they said you can one of these will be yours and it turned out to be transponder 7 on satcom 1 still no money down so if you know i had to ask that question at some point when when do we have to pay start paying some money and what they said was we will not charge you you're committed it's your transponder we won't charge you until your first use of the transponder. Now, this is end of September, say October 1st. So it was late September of 1978. And we had no plans to use the transponder, obviously. And then as we began to really start to develop the idea of ESPN, and we talking to all the cable operators. They were trying to figure out what it would look like. So we said we wanted to do some demonstration events. We worked with the University of Connecticut And we did a basketball game and a soccer game in October, but we used someone else's transponders because we didn't want to, we didn't have the money to trigger ours. Then finally, in January of 1979, we did a uh, Rutgers at UConn basketball game, and that was our first use of the transponder. And the terms were quite simple they would bill us 30 days after the first use and we would have 30 days to pay so we figured we had from January 9th to March 9th to get everything done and
0: we were sure we would have the money by then. Thanks to Lane McGiboney and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life and audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember everyone has a special talent you just need to identify it cultivate it and be willing to pay the price. You too can become an American achiever.